We are tonight uh, for this new year beginning a study of the book of Judges. And so I want to invite you to turn there. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. So turn in a few pages from the front of your Bible and you'll find Judges chapter 1. And that's where we'll begin reading here in just a moment. Now, Father, we pray that as we open your word, we wouldn't do so with deaf ears or blind eyes. Pray that as we open your word, we wouldn't do so with disinterested hearts. That, God, you would arrest our attention for yourself, for your glory, for your son's sake. God, for our own good, we pray that you help us hear with the ears of faith tonight and Lord, I confess to you that with the preparation put in um, and hopefully the ability to communicate your word accurately tonight, uh, I still don't have the power to change anyone's heart. Even if I say all the right things, your spirit has to come uh, and do that for us. Lord, I can aim the, the bow straight and let the arrow go, but I don't have the strength in my arms to pull back far enough to really pierce our hearts only by your spirit if you would come and grab the bowstring behind me and pull so that your word wouldn't just be presented correctly but with power driving deep into our hearts so that it pierces even soul and spirit and judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart god if you would do that then we would benefit tonight we would grow tonight we would repent tonight we would believe tonight as we should so i pray spirit that you would come with your mighty arm and pull back the string and let fly your word in the power of the spirit tonight and i pray in jesus name amen amen i'd like to begin reading judges chapter one and verse one Now it came about after the death of Joshua that the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, saying, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Then Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I in turn will go with you into the territory allotted you. So Simeon went with him. Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands, and they defeated 10,000 men at Basic. They found Adonai Basic in Basic and fought against him, and they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. But Adonai Basic fled, and they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Adonai Basic said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to gather up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. So they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. Just pause at that place for a moment because these opening few verses of the book of Judges uh, set the scene for us. They kind of uh, place the studs in place that we will use to hang uh, the rest of our thoughts uh, as we go through the book of Judges in the weeks to come. And we need to, to get a feeling for where we are so that we might know where we're going. And what you have here, just in these first few verses, 
is the setting of this book. The very first verse tells us that this book, the things written in it, came about after the death of Joshua. Joshua died in about 1380 B.C., and so that's where we're picking up here around that time, 3,400 years ago almost. But you'll recall the history of the Old Testament with the book of Exodus. God's people, the Israelites, are enslaved in Egypt, and in the book of Exodus, he delivers them from Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And then for 40 years, because of their grumbling and complaining and disobedience, they wandered in the wilderness. And that covers the books of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And then in beginning in the book of Joshua, they finally, after 40 years in the wilderness, after all that first generation, save two men, had died in the wilderness, God brought them across the Jordan River into the promised land, into the land of Canaan. And in the book of Joshua, we find the account of them taking the land as their own, the conquest of Canaan there in Joshua. And they were doing, in the book of Joshua, just as the Lord had commanded them. Way back in Exodus 23, when he had delivered them from Egypt, he told them this about the land into which they would enter. I will drive them, meaning the Canaanites, I will drive them out before you little by little until you become fruitful and take possession of the land. I will fix your boundary from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the river Euphrates. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you will drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them or with their gods. They shall not live in your land because they will make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So God had told them 40 years previous, I'm going to take you into the land, and when you get there, I want you to drive the inhabitants out of the land so that it is a holy land, pure, set apart for people only who worship me. I don't even want you to make partnerships with these people or covenants with them. I want you to drive them out completely. And so in the book of Joshua, they begin to do that. And when we come to the book of Judges, we find that though Joshua has now passed from the scene, they're still in this process of driving out the people from the land. Remember, God said that they would do it little by little. And so they're continuing that as we come to Judges chapter 1. And we just read in Judges one of these groups of people that they drove out, Adonai, Basic, and his followers. So in Judges 1, the conquest of the land of Canaan continues, and they made a good start. They inquired of the Lord. Joshua has now passed from the scene. They have no leader. So they say, Joshua's not here to tell us what to do. Let's ask God what to do, verse 1. And God tells them what to do, and they do exactly what God says. And the rest of this chapter, chapter 1, is is a continuation of this military history that we find throughout the book of Joshua and now in chapter 1 of Judges. Judges chapter 1 is really almost a continuation of the book of Joshua. It begins here with these military conquests that probably lasted several years, and then the book of Judges ends 300 years later, just before the crowning of King Saul. So if you're thinking about the book of Judges and where it fits in, uh, one of the key phrases that's repeated a few times in this book uh, is the phrase, in those days there was no king in Israel. And that will describe several things, but one of the things it describes is the time period between Moses and Joshua and between the monarchy, beginning with Saul and then David and his family. This book covers those periods of years, about 1380 to 1060 B.C. So that's where we are in the history of the Bible. Uh, Also, these first seven verses Uh, give us something else that's characteristic of the book, namely this story about Adonai Basic. Throughout this book, as we will see over the next three or four months, 
Uh, We come to story after story after story like this story, these little small anecdotes, some of them uh, quite intriguing, a few of them sometimes bizarre, as this one is. But all of these stories and these characters and the stories all have a moral behind them. Uh, So many of you, I'm sure all of you are familiar with Aesop's fables. Those are uh, parables, so to speak, uh, to teach morals and to teach truth. Well, these are real stories that actually happen that the author of Judges, who is probably Samuel, uh, has stuck in here uh, to remind us of some biblical truths. He didn't have to tell us about Adonai Basic's thumbs and and, um, big toes, It doesn't necessarily uh, make the story flow along, the overall story of Judges, but he sticks it in there to teach us something. What does this particular little anecdote teach us? Well, it teaches us from the lips of this pagan king, as I have done, verse 7, so God has repaid me. You find all sorts of little uh, anecdotes, little paragraphs like this in the book of Judges, teaching us uh, lessons as we go along, and we'll try to note them as we go through these next months. But just before we go on tonight, I want to, I point out that maybe this is a lesson that some of you need to hear. We're not going to rest here very long, but this this lesson, as I have done, so God has repaid me. Someone here may need to hear that. Someone here may be cutting off people's thumbs. What's the point of him cutting off thumbs? The reason you would do that is it makes life a lot harder if you don't have thumbs, right? One of the great things about being a human versus being an ape or a monkey is that we have thumbs that work and we can pick stuff up a lot easier. We can write and so on. If you don't have thumbs, life's a lot more difficult. Adonai Basic apparently cut off these men's thumbs just to uh, scoff at them and make their lives hard. And some of you may be with your parents or your children or your wife or your husband or someone that you work with just being a real pain in the neck. And Adonai Basic is a reminder to you that as you do to others, God has the right to repay you the same. Just a little side note. The main thing here is the book of Judges, conquest of the land, and then what follows that all the way up until the monarchy. So let's continue then reading in verses 8 through 20. Then the sons of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it, captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. Afterwards, the sons of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites living in the hill country and in the Negev and in the lowlands. So Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron formerly was Kiriath Arba, and they struck Sheshai and Ahimon and Talmai. Just to note, these Judah, Simeon, and so on, these different names are the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so this is all the same nation, just the different tribes in our country, different Uh, states, you might say. Then from there, he went against the inhabitants of Debir, that is Judah, the tribe of Judah. Now the name of Debir formerly was Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, the one who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will even give him my daughter Aksa for a wife. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. So he gave him his daughter Aksa for a wife. Then it came about when she came to him that she persuaded him to ask her father for a field. And she alighted from her donkey and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing since you have given me the land of the Negev. Give me also springs of water. So Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. The descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of Palms with the sons of Judah to the wilderness of Judah, which is in the south of Arad. 
and they went and lived with the people. Then Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they struck the Canaanites living in Zephath and utterly destroyed it. So the name of the city was called Hormah. And Judah took Gaza with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. Now the Lord was with Judah and they took possession of the hill country, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had iron chariots. Then they gave Hebron to Caleb as Moses had promised, and he drove out from there the three sons of Anak. So again, God says to the people, go into the land, completely drive out the people of the land, don't live with them, don't make a covenant with them. And here in these verses, really verses 1 through 20, we see that they had done well. That almost to a 100% degree, they had done what the Lord asked them to do. In verse 1, they inquired of the Lord. In verse 2, He told them what He wanted them to do. In verse 3, they did exactly what He said. In verse 4, the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands. And then in verses 5 through 20, that scene is repeated over and over and over again as they go in at the Lord's command to drive out the people of the land and do exactly what the Lord has told them to do. And the Lord continues to bless them and give their enemies into their hands. It's really an amazing thing how God takes this little tiny nation and makes them a mighty force as they obey him. And in these verses that we just read, the author zooms in um, to the family of this man named Caleb. Now, if you know the story of, of the wilderness wanderings of the Israelites, you'll recognize the name Caleb. But Caleb was a man who was very important in the leadership of Israel, even before this time. And in verses 11 through 13, we have this amazing little story about Caleb and his daughter and his future son-in-law. Let me read it to you again. From there he went, he being Judah, went against the inhabitants of Debir. Now the name of Debir was formerly Kiriath-Sephir. And Caleb said, The one who attacks Kiriath-Sephir and captures it, I will even give him my daughter Aksa for a wife. Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, so he gave him his daughter Aksa for a wife. This is a story almost right out of the fairy tales, right? Something that you would see in the movie. This uh, mighty leader has a beautiful princess-like daughter, and he says, the man who will go and be valiant enough to capture this city can have my daughter as a wife. And I think this story is stuck in there, first of all, to explain how it is that Caleb's daughter and her family came to possess part of the land to themselves. But I think it's also put in here to remind us that when God's people were following him with all their hearts, as they're doing here, they were valiant people. They were chivalrous people. They were brave people. They were successful people. And God did amazing things. And you have beautiful events like this bravery on the part of Othniel when his people were obeying him with all of their hearts. And then at the end of the section we just read, they zoom in on Caleb again. And let me remind you who Caleb was. He was famous before this passage about his daughter-in-law for something else far more important. That is, when the people of Israel were about to cross into the land of Canaan, or where they thought they were about to cross into the land of Canaan, 40 to 45 years before this day, Moses sent 12 spies into the land to spy out the land and say, tell us what it's like, tell us what we need to know so that we can go in and possess it. Twelve men, one from each of the tribes of Israel, went into the land to spy it out. And they found 
uh, amazing fruit there. They found that God had blessed the land, that it was an amazing land, and they should have come back, all 12 of them, and said, this is a great land that God has provided for us. Let's go in and take it just like he said. But while they were coming back, they saw some abnormally large uh, human beings, some people that uh, were called giants. We don't know how big those giants were. We shouldn't think of you know, 20-foot Jack and the Beanstalk giants. But apparently uh, a group of people, uh, an ethnicity, a tribe, that was abnormally large. And the Israelites, the spies, these 12 men saw these men. And so they came back to report to Moses. And 10 of the men, uh, their knees were weak and they were scared. And they chickened out and they said, we can't do it. We can't do it. We can't go in. They lied about the land. They said it's not a very good land. And on top of that, the people there are so big that we look like grasshoppers in their eyes. Now, that was an exaggeration, but people are prone to exaggerate when they want to mislead you. Exaggeration is just a form of lying. But two of the spies, Joshua, whom we spoke of earlier, who became the the leader after Moses and is now dead, and Caleb said, no, 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 no. God told us that he'd give us this land. We need to do what God said. Well, the people didn't listen. They tried to rebel against Moses, and God caused them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And he said, the only ones of you that are going to survive this 40 years are Joshua and Caleb. And particularly, he promised to Caleb a special allotment of land. When you get to the land, Caleb, you're going to have your own special homestead. And in verse 20, then we read that Caleb got exactly what was promised. They gave Hebron to Caleb as Moses had promised. And he drove out from there the three sons of Anak. Incidentally, the three sons of Anak, the Anakim, were the giants that were in the land that everyone was so afraid of. So Caleb got what Moses promised. But I want to point out to you that it wasn't just Moses who promised this special allotment to Caleb. Before Moses made the promise, God made the promise. Deuteronomy 1, 35 and 36, this is God speaking about what had happened when these ten men spread a bad report about the land. He said, Not one of these men, this evil generation, shall see the good land which I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it, and to him and his sons I will give the land on which he has set foot because he has followed the Lord Fully. In other words, Caleb got that piece of land where the giants were, where Caleb and the other spies were walking. That particular piece of land was promised to Caleb, and God gave it to him. Now the point of this story about Caleb and the point of the other story about Caleb and his daughter is simply, again, to point out that when God's people were following him with all of their hearts, God blessed them. He blessed them. Even 45 years earlier, he blessed Caleb and promised something good to him. And now he fulfills his promise. God is faithful when people follow through and follow him with all their hearts. And he blessed them and made their families, as we said, valiant families, brave families, successful families. Just as an aside, I would say to you, whether you have children or whether you hope to have children, I hope you want your children to be valiant and bold for the Lord. And when you follow the Lord with all of your heart, they will be like this young man, Othniel, was. God blesses his people's faithfulness. It's not to say that they won't ever have struggles. Obviously, Israel was fighting a war here. That's not easy. So this isn't a pie in the sky. God is going to just bless you and everything will be fine. But it is to say, in 
Christ, we are more than conquerors. If we are going hard after God, if we are following Him faithfully, yes, we'll have difficulty, but yes, we will also conquer. We will be like Caleb, who said when they entered the land at 85 years of of age, he is now, I'm as strong as I was when I was 40. He was bold and he was ready to go. And he said, I can still fight battles and win wars and I will get that piece of property that the Lord promised me. God is faithful when we follow Him with our whole hearts. Then they gave Hebron to Caleb, verse 20, as Moses had promised, as God had promised, and he drove out from there the three sons of Anak. But... The sons of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the sons of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Everything is triumphant until but in verse 21. And it goes downhill from there. Likewise, the house of Joseph went up against Bethel and the Lord was with them. The house of Joseph spied out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. The spies saw a man coming out of the city and they said to him, please show us the entrance to the city and we will treat you kindly. So he showed them the entrance to the city and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go free. The man went into the land of the Hittites, still part of the land of Canaan, into the land of the Hittites and built a city and named it Luz, which is its name to this day. But Manasseh did not take possession of Beth Shean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibleam and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. So the Canaanites persisted in living in that land. It came about when Israel became strong that they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who were living in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulon did not drive out the inhabitants of Ketron or the inhabitants of Nahalol, so the Canaanites lived among them and became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Alab or of Aksib or of Helba or of Athik or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, but lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, and the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became forced labor for them. Then the Amorites forced the sons of Dan. The Amorites were the Canaanites. The sons of Dan were the Israelites. The Amorites forced the sons of Dan into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the valley. Yet the Amorites persisted in living in Mount Heres, in Ijalon, and in Shalbim. But when the power of the house of Joseph grew strong, they became forced labor. The border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim, from Selah, and upward. Everything has gone south now. The people who were so bold and so valiant at the beginning, in the middle of this chapter, in the middle of this military campaign, in the middle of doing what God had told them to do, lost heart. So that we read again, verse 21, that Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites. Verse 27, that Manasseh did not take possession of Beth Shean. Verse 29, that Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. Verse 30, that Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Ketron. Verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko. Verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. And finally, 
as we noted in verse 34, the Amorites, the Canaanites, far from being not driven out by the tribe of Dan, actually drove the tribe of Dan back out of the land that was supposed to be theirs. It's an amazing turnaround. Someone says, well, at least verses 22 through 26 are good. Joseph, uh, in his house, took Bethel. But remember the command of God in Exodus 23. You will drive them out before you, and you shall make no covenant with them. And even in Bethel, verse 22, where the Lord was with them, and where there was apparent success, they didn't follow the Lord fully because they made a covenant with this man and his family who simply went and replanted the city of Luz somewhere else. Even the tribe of Joseph, who seemingly succeeded, didn't follow the Lord with all their hearts. Think this out with me. The Israelites began well. They began exceedingly well. God was with them. He blessed them. He made them valiant. He made them successful in the land. But as time went on, they left all over the promised land unfinished business in the form of Jebusite and Hittite and Philistine and Amorite and so on. All over the place where God had told them to completely drive the people out of the land, they didn't do all that God had told them to do. Now, on the surface, surely to the Israelites it didn't seem like that big a deal. After all, they'd wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and now they're in the land. That's good, right? We're in the land. Yes, there's a few Canaanites living around, but... We've made them our slaves. It's not like they're going to be strong enough to rise up against us. It's not like we, their masters, are going to be tempted to follow after the idols of our slaves. In fact, they might have said this arrangement is actually more humiliating for the Canaanites. If we'd have driven them out and they'd have all gone to live in Babylon somewhere, they could have had their self-respect and their dignity and maybe grown powerful again. But we've left some of them here and made them our slaves so that we can continue, as it, as it were, to spit in their faces constantly and remind them that we took their land. Probably that's the way that many of the Israelites thought. Yes, we didn't get them all out. But it seems to have worked quite well and we're in a pretty good situation. Well, the problem with that is that God didn't ask them to figure out what would be best on their own. God asked them to do it His way and only His way. And He reminds them of that in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Now the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and He said, I brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. You hear him saying, all that I have given you freely that you didn't deserve. And as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? That was the issue. You have not obeyed me. Not does it look good. Not does it seem to work. Not is it better than what we had before. You have not obeyed me. It didn't matter to God how well the people had begun. They didn't finish what He called them to do. It didn't matter to God what kind of political arrangement that they thought would be passable in the promised land. What mattered to God was were they following the Lord fully. And they weren't. And they didn't throughout the rest of this book. This is where the rubber meets the road for us. This isn't just a lecture 
on the history of the judges and the people of Israel. The rubber meets the road here in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2 for us. We're not called, obviously, to go out and conquer some land. But we may be just as guilty as the Israelites of failing to do exactly as the Lord has commanded, failing to follow the Lord fully. And like them, we may be guilty of downplaying our disobedience. You have to answer that in your own heart for your own life. But I think that many of us oftentimes are guilty of downplaying the fact that we haven't really done all that the Lord has told us to do. We may say to ourselves, I know that the Lord has said do this, and I know He said do it in this way, but there were extenuating circumstances. Things that were out of my control. The people had iron chariots, verse 19. And the thing that I've done that was a little bit different than what the Lord asked is a small thing. It's not like we left the Canaanites in the land altogether. It was a small thing. We just left a few of them. And some of you have said some of those same kinds of things about your sin. I did most of what the Lord asked me to do. And the thing I left undone wasn't that big a deal, really, in the end. And it seems to work out. I've worked out okay. After all, I'm well, I'm healthy, I've got all that I need. Surely I must be under God's blessing. I just wonder if any of you are speaking like that to yourself in recent days. You have to answer for yourself, but just probe your conscience a little bit and ask, have I been speaking about areas of disobedience like that? It wasn't that big of a deal. There were extenuating circumstances. It seems to have worked out okay, so I guess I'll just leave it as it is. That's the way you thought. Here, verses 1 and 2 again. I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed me. What is this that you have done? Hear God in back of that saying to us, I sent my own son into the world to lay down his life for you. And I've given you specific instructions and they're not irksome instructions. They are for your best interest and you've known exactly what I've called you to do and you have not done it. What is this that you have done? What I want to say to you and what I want to say to myself tonight is this. God is not interested in our assessment of things. He is not interested in our excuses for why we didn't do what he said. He's not interested in our ideas of how we could do it a different way. He's not interested in what we think might be passable and might be okay and our partway obedience that looks pretty good. He's not interested in those things. He's not interested in our adaptations of his instructions to our extenuating circumstances. And he isn't impressed when we work out a deal with the people of Bethel to make obedience a little bit quicker and a little bit easier. God's desire is the same for us as it was for the Israelites and as it was for Caleb that we follow the Lord fully. We follow the Lord fully. And I just want to ask you with just a series of three questions if you're following the Lord fully. Three questions that arise in my mind as I look at Judges chapters 1 and 2. The first is this. Have you left any unfinished business? Have you left any unfinished business? The Lord's business, that is. Have you inquired of the Lord as the Israelites did and found that the Lord answered you as He did them in verse 2? 
Maybe it was through the still, small voice of the Spirit. Maybe it was through the direct, obvious teaching of His Word. He answered you and told you what you should do. And you began well, and now you've stopped. You haven't finished the assignment that He's given you. Maybe it's with a relationship. Maybe it has to do with some vow that you made, or a ministry opportunity, or a commitment to witness to this or that person. Maybe it's some issue of personal holiness in your life that no one else would know about but you, but you know what God has said and you began well and now you've dropped out. What I want to remind you is that to the Israelites, a few cities left uncaptured didn't seem like a big deal. A few Canaanites still in the land didn't seem like a big deal to them. But the Lord did not ask them for 90%. He didn't ask them for 99%. He asked them to follow Him fully. And He asked that of you and He asked that of me. The second question is simply this. Are there direct, clear commands of Scripture that you haven't fulfilled? That's what the Israelites had, isn't it? Exodus 23, You shall drive the Canaanites out of the land and you shall not make a covenant with them. Clear instructions that they didn't fulfill? Are there clear instructions of Scripture that you know are there, but that you haven't fulfilled? I'm not asking you to, to, to launch a giant investigation and to go home tonight and try to read the Bible from cover to cover, finding some little thing that you've left undone. I'm simply asking on the plain, bald, surface-level truths that you know that perhaps God has convinced you of in a Sunday message or that He's brought home to you on a Wednesday night or that He's opened up to you in your personal devotions. Something that you know you should do, something that you haven't done. Maybe it's in the realm of forgiveness. Maybe it's in the realm of generosity. Maybe it's in the realm of one of these Ten Commandments that we studied this past year. Maybe it's in some realm that I haven't even thought of, but that God knows and so do you. I want you to remember that for the Israelites, it seemed like a wise expedient for them to make this covenant with the man and his family from Bethel. It seemed wise. It seemed like a clever way of getting things done more quickly and more easily. You tell us how to get into the city, we'll let you go free. God isn't interested in our cleverness. He doesn't ask us to be clever. He doesn't ask us to figure out how to do things an easier way or a better way. He simply asks us to follow Him fully. Thirdly, I'd ask you if you're living with the Canaanites. Are you living with the Canaanites? Remember verse 21 and all the verses that follow it. The sons of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the sons of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. They were supposed to drive them out because they would be a snare to them and their gods would be a snare to them. But instead, they were content to live with the Canaanites. And so are many of God's people today. I just ask you if the Canaanites, the unbelieving people of this world and their philosophies, are those people whiling away the hours in your living room? You say, well, no, I don't have anybody over for dinner very often. And so this is a pretty easy one for me. That's not what I mean, although it could be that you have unhealthy relationships with unbelievers who influence you and drag you into sin. That might be true for some of you. But the Canaanites, the the worldly philosophies that are all around us, that are a snare to us, usually reach us, most of us, through our 
televisions and our radios and our computers and our book and magazine reading habits and so on. Because we listen to people talk who haven't a clue what God wants for his people and they're giving us advice. And isn't it true that half of what's on television, well, that's an exaggeration, but a lot of what's on television is trying to give you advice, how to spend your money, how to make your relationships better, how to do this, how to do that, how to do the other thing. It's fine if you're learning how to cook a souffle from some person on the television, but so many of us listen to advice from Canaanites, from people who aren't believers about how we should live our lives, how we should think about ourselves and think about others and think about money and think about possessions. It's ridiculous. But all of us do it. And some of us a lot more than others. I never forget sitting uh, across uh, just two chairs, sitting across from a lady uh, who, to my knowledge, was a believer and talking about some things and uh, trying to discuss family life and um, and how that was going to work and how it needed to look for a Christian family. Uh, and having this woman drop the word on me that I'm sure you've all heard, self-actualization. I think it's a new word in the last 20 years, perhaps. Self-actualization. What I wanted to say is, where did you get that? Does the Bible teach that we're supposed to self-actualize? In other words, that we're supposed to find out what's going to make us most happy and most fulfilled and pursue that dream? Is that what the Bible says? No. That's what Dr. Phil says. That's what Oprah says. That's what Reader's Digest says. That's what the magazines that are on the newsstands at the Kroger store say to us. But the Bible teaches that we live for the glory of God and that we'll be happy in that, yes but that the chief goal is not to figure out what's going to make me happy, what's going to fulfill my life, what's going to actualize my potential, but the chief goal is how can I honor God? It's just a small example of someone who is a believer who had totally bought into world philosophy. And she'd bought into world philosophy because through some avenue or other, I don't know which, but she was letting the Canaanites live with her in her living room or on her bedside table or on her car radio. And so have many of us. And if we have, we need to listen to chapter 2, verse 3. After God says to them, what is this you have done? He says, therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become as thorns in your sides and their gods will be a snare to you. In other words, if you allow the Canaanites to live with you, I'll leave them there. And they will ruin your life. And they will make you miserable. And some of us have felt that. We've had the Canaanites in our lives for so long. And we know we should kick them out. We know we should kick these worldly philosophies out of our lives. But we just can't do it. And the longer they stay, the harder they are to kick out, aren't they? And the more they make us miserable. And that's the way it was with the Israelites. And that's the way it will be, God says, with us. We will be miserable if we listen to the world. And this verse, verse 3, then becomes a topic sentence in a way for the rest of this book. Because the rest of the book of Judges is a downward spiral of verse 3 coming to fulfillment. It's a spiral of God's people being ensnared by the Canaanites, falling in love with their gods, being more and more miserable, and more than that, being more and more corrupt and degraded. So that by the time you get to chapter 21, the people that we read about in chapter 1 wouldn't even be recognized as the same group that we find in chapter 21. 
The people who began with chivalry and valiant, valiant behavior and bravery and success and boldness finish up the book of Judges with rape and brutality and idolatry and murder where a particular lady is chopped into pieces. This is the same group of people who began so well. And it all happened because they listened to the world. So the warning in verse 3 of chapter 2 is the same warning for us. This can happen to us. We can become miserable and shameful and unrecognizable as God's people if we continue listening to the world. Will God utterly forsake us? Say, I've had it with you. You're no longer my people. No. Chapter 2, verse 1 again, the end of the verse, I will never break my covenant with you. God won't break His covenant with His people. But He does reserve the right if we choose to disobey, if we choose to leave His business unfinished, if we choose to build an addition for the Canaanites on the back of our house, God does reserve the right to leave our sinfulness as a constant snare in our lives. So some of you may be listening and you may be thinking to yourself, maybe that's why I can't ever seem to get over the hump. Because I'm ignoring these commands. Or because I haven't finished what God has asked me to do. Or because I'm listening and have settled in quite nicely, comfortably with the Canaanites. Maybe that's what it is. God is saying in verse 3, yeah, that's what it is. If you can't seem to get over the hump spiritually, if you can't seem to grow, it's likely because God has told you exactly what He asked you to do and you've up to this point refused to do it. So, how do we conclude then? The natural way to end a sermon like this would seem to be with a megaphone in your hand, in my hand, for me to shout to you all, do better! Stop doing what you're doing and resolve to do better. Go out of here, finish what you've left undone, start obeying those commandments that you've ignored, and kick the Canaanites out of your house. And I do say those things. But I also want to say that there's something more important that you need to do first. And I want to show you, as we finish, what happened with the Israelites. After God scolded them in verses 1-3, through what happened? Verse 4, when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. So they named that place Bochim, and there they sacrificed to the Lord. They did two things. They wept for their sins and they sought forgiveness. That's the significance of they sacrificed to the Lord. First of all, they wept for their sins. They realized that verses 1 through 3 weren't a slap on the wrist. God wasn't just saying to them, do better next time. God was saying to them, you are rebels. Your lifestyles have become ugly. You are unholy. You are ungrateful to me who brought you out of the land of Egypt with an outstretched arm. They knew that they were getting more than a slap on the wrist. And I hope that's the effect that God has given this sermon, especially if you find yourself in the position of the Israelites tonight. This sermon isn't just a pep talk to say, go out and do better. Experience, if you're in the position of the Israelites, has shown you that you've tried to do better and you haven't done it. 
In fact, the Israelites try to do better and they haven't done it. You remember the great famous phrase from the end of the book of Joshua. Joshua says, you Israelites, choose this day whom you're going to serve. You can either serve God or you can serve the gods of the Canaanites. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people said in the very next verse, far be it from us to go after the gods of the Canaanites. We will serve the Lord. And here, just in the early chapters of Judges, we find them waffling. So if this was just a pep talk to say, go out, you know the right things to do, just go do them. It would be a failure. You don't have the ability to do that. Neither do I, or we would have done it already. Rather, if you're in the position of the Israelites, this message and this passage, I hope, is a passage and a message to break your heart. To remind you of how miserable you are without God. I, he says, brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed me. It's God's voice speaking to the people. And if God's voice is speaking to you that way, that tonight the answer is not simply to pull up your bootstraps and to buck up and try harder. The answer is to weep. That God has given you His Son and prepared a place in heaven for you and promised never to leave you or forsake you, and yet you continue to disobey Him. And so do I. We should weep for that. And when we get done weeping, we should do the second thing that the Israelites did, namely seek forgiveness. We should seek forgiveness. Now these Israelites obviously were dense in many different ways. They were slow to hear. They were slow to obey. They were rebellious. But one thing they knew, one thing they understood, namely, we cannot make up for our sins. We can't do it. They knew this. That's why they sacrificed in verse 5. They said to themselves, we can try harder, we can do better, we can drive the Canaanites out of the land tonight if we want, but none of that will atone for the sins that we've already committed. We cannot atone for our own sins. We need a sacrifice, an unblemished, spotless lamb who will stand in our place and take the punishment that we deserve on that altar and take away our sins. And I trust that you and I know the same thing. As Augustus' top lady put it, for us in our modern terms, could my zeal no limit no? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin would not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. We can weep all night. We can resolve to do better. We can be as zealous as we want, but none of that will make up for our past failures. So my hope, as we finish tonight, is that we won't simply resolve merely to do better. There's going to be a place for that, but I hope initially we leave tonight with a deep sense of our need for a spotless lamb, and more than that, with a great confidence that there is that kind of lamb provided. A lamb who was tempted to take shortcuts, tempted to do what was expedient. Remember, Satan said, if you just bow to me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. You don't have to go through three years of struggle. You don't have to be persecuted by the Pharisees. You don't have to mess with all these crazy disciples. You don't have to go to the cross and die there. Just bow to me. He was tempted to do what was easy instead of doing what God told him. 
But in the end, he said, not my will, but yours be done. So that he, unlike us, did follow through. He did do all that God told him to. He was able to say, I always do what pleases my father. He did, unlike you and unlike me, unlike even Caleb, Jesus Christ did always follow the Lord fully, 100%, even to the point of death on a cross. We need to look to Him when we're convicted of sin. We need to look to Him when we find that we failed, and I pray that tonight we will. Let me ask the Lord to help us. Father, I pray um, most of all, God, that You do help us to look to Your Son, that You... Don't wound us tonight simply to leave us wounded, but to draw us to your Son. And God, I pray that if we have been wounded in our conscience tonight, that we won't try to salve it with our own try-harders and do-betters. pray that we would weep. Some of us aren't given to do that outwardly, but I pray that in our hearts, if we know that we are in the position of the Israelites, that in our hearts we would weep and agonize over how ungrateful we are. And I pray that in doing that, we'd be driven to the foot of the cross where there is atonement for sin, where there is forgiveness for the sinner. We thank You for that. And Lord, we pray that being forgiven, we might walk out of here tonight not with fresh resolves, Lord, but with new strength to do those things You've asked us to do. We pray that You make us obedient and we pray that You help us when we are to give You the credit for it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.